Scripture makes it clear that God has designed marriage to be a lifetime covenant. But are there circumstances in which divorce is an acceptable option for a believer? Today on Truth For Life, Alistair Begg addresses this important question as he continues our new study in the Gospel According to Mark. We're going to return again to the study we began this morning in Mark chapter 10. But I would like, first of all, to read from Proverbs chapter 5. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house lest you give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel, lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. At the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, How I hated discipline! How my heart spurned correction! I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always, May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. Father, help us now as we think these things through. The clarity of Your Word is what we need. The moving of Your Spirit is what we long for, so that we might receive the Bible as it is the very Word of God, that it might correct, rebuke, restrain us, constrain us, and lead us each in the paths of righteousness for Your name's sake. Amen. Well, I chose to read uh, Proverbs uh, 5 as uh, a cross-reference to what we began this morning in Mark chapter 10. Proverbs, of course, is a wonderful book. Derek Kidner refers to it as a book in which the writer Solomon seeks to put godliness into working clothes. In other words, there's an intense practicality about the way in which he writes concerning the nature of what we referred to this morning as a kind of holy worldliness. And in the chapter we've just read, 
uh, he very clearly and very quickly warns his son or his sons about the seductress. He points out the dreadful price that will be paid for infidelity. He then encourages very clearly the enjoyment of marriage, and he sets the enjoyment of marriage in direct contrast to the pathetic alternative, which is to go down this path that leads to death. And in the course of all of that, it is perfectly clear that the Bible is discreet but not silent on the matter of sexual delight in marriage. Some have failed to understand this, and as a result, they have settled for a marriage which might be described simply as a kind of sensible, business-like arrangement, only to discover that human passion inevitably seeks other outlets. And the inherent warning that is contained in Solomon's words is both a warning on the one hand and an encouragement on the other hand to settle for nothing less than that which God has made our wonderful provision in the gift of marriage as he has established it and as he expects it to be enjoyed. Now, that's enough on Proverbs 5. We come back to Mark chapter 10. Let it suffice for us to note that in responding to the question posed to him by the Pharisees here in Mark chapter 10, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus, we have seen, takes these individuals, these religious leaders, back to first principles. And he makes it perfectly clear what we endeavored to understand this morning, that marriage is not a human invention, nor is it a social convention, but it is, as we said earlier, a creation ordinance. And because it is a creation ordinance, it is relevant to and it is binding upon all of God's creation. I sought to make that clear this morning by making sure that we didn't fall foul of the idea that we were talking simply about marriage within the framework of Christian convictions. There is a great wonder in that and a great enjoyment in that, the kind of uh, Ecclesiastes uh, concept of a cord of three strands is not quickly broken, which is more often than not used in a marriage ceremony and is pressed into service as saying uh, we have the man, we have the wife, and we have the third party, namely Jesus himself. And that, of course, is true. But since marriage is a creation ordinance— God is concerned about Muslim marriage. He's concerned about Hindu marriage. He's concerned about pagan marriage. He's concerned about secular marriage. He is concerned about marriage because it is built into the very fabric of humanity. And that marriage, as we saw this morning, is heterosexual, it is monogamous, it is lifelong. And it is in that context, and only in that context, that men and women are enabled to discover the benefits of what it means to live in a one-flesh union. Therefore, it is imperative that those who love the Bible and seek to live in obedience to it 
will then teach those under our influence what the Bible says concerning these things. And not least of all, in this climate, teach our children as soon as it is sensible and realistic that there is a right time for everything, that there is a right place for the enjoyment of everything, and when it comes to the issues of sexual fulfillment, there is only one place and there is only one time that God permits all this to unfold. And that is within the context of a relationship which is heterosexual, monogamous, and lifelong. Now, the only thing that I'd like to add to that before moving on is something that I'm assuming that you are with, but just in case you're not, let me state it, namely, that for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible makes it clear that marriage should only be with someone who is also a believer. And if you want to follow up your thinking on that, you can read 2 Corinthians 6, and you can tease it out from there. But suffice it to say that I acknowledge what is a very important foundational principle when it comes again to the training and guiding and instructing of our children and those under our care. We can acknowledge that those who have not followed God's plan and pattern and principle in this have sometimes been able to testify to the fact that God has overruled their disobedience. But we must also be humble enough to acknowledge that in time without number, such testimonies are not forthcoming, because the protestation on the part of the believer about marrying the unbeliever, which said, but they will come around. They've promised me that when I marry him, that he will begin to listen, that he will begin to read, that he will begin to attend. And I've always said to the girl, if when he's trying to secure your hand in marriage, he will not do these things for you, there is very little likelihood that he will do so after he has got what he wants. And sadly, the truth is there for our observation. Now, we got as far as verse 9 this morning, and Mark goes on to record the fact that there was further discussion when Jesus and the disciples got back to the house. And what you have in Mark chapter 10 is a parallel passage to what is recorded for us in Matthew's gospel in chapter 19. And you may just want to put a finger into Matthew chapter 19 so that if I make mention of it, you can actually confirm that what I'm saying is there. And in the Matthew record of these things, uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus' followers, when they heard what he had to say concerning this, remarked to him that it surely is a better idea not to get married at all, because the striking nature of Jesus' words made it sound as if it was virtually impossible uh, to proceed along these lines. And uh, Jesus addresses that in his conversation with them. And in the verses that we were left to consider, verse 10 and 11 and 12, 
when they asked Jesus in the house, he, verse 11, answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, what ought to be obvious here is that Jesus is assuming, as a matter of course, that a divorced party will remarry. Otherwise, there would be no adultery. The assumption is that the divorce takes place, and as a result of remarriage, where there is no ground for divorce, the result is adultery. And what is most striking about this is the categorical nature of this statement. And for myself, I think it is very important that when we read our Bibles like this, when we come to statements like this, that we ought to sit quietly before them and allow them to register in our thinking and to settle in our minds in all of their bold simplicity, in all of their telling clarity, before we immediately begin to reach for clarifying passages of the Bible to help us to discover exceptions uh, to this categorical statement. The Lord Jesus understood that the stability of society, that the security of family living, that the enjoyment of relationships within a marriage was directly tied to the institution of marriage being upheld according to God's design. So that when the institution of marriage is overturned, when the Creator's clear statements are rejected— there are ramifications which follow, as we said this morning. And when we read the Bible, and we read in the Old Testament, we discover that God, in a similarly categorical statement, makes clear in the prophecy of Malachi that He actually hates divorce. Not that He hates it as a process, but He hates it because of the sinful causes of divorce— and because of the sinful consequences of divorce. So, our first concern in coming to a passage like this is to allow the passage to say what it says without equivocation, and to realize that what Jesus has done here in this question posed by the Pharisees in going back to first principles is describe for us, is illustrate for us, create a pattern for us of seeing that our first responsibility is to be about the business of sustaining marriage according to God's design, rather than seeking to dismantle marriage according to our own human desires. With that said, it is clear that we must always interpret Scripture with Scripture. And that's why I've said you should have your finger in Matthew chapter 19, because there in Matthew chapter 19, in that account, Matthew makes explicit something which Mark and Luke simply assume. And if you are looking there uh, at the passage, you will see just exactly what it is to which I'm referring. It's verse 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife—and here is the exception clause—except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, Mark doesn't say that. Luke doesn't say that in his passage. 
Some people say, and that's, uh, you know, they, they go into all kinds of explanations for it. I'm a fairly simple soul, and my observation is simply this, that Mark and Luke could leave it alone because this exception was already widely understood within the framework of Judaism. In the Jewish context, people knew that divorce on account of marital unfaithfulness was allowed, was permissible. And if you can only think of one place in the New Testament, you'll be thinking of a helpful place. Where? In the birth narratives, in the story of Joseph and Mary. And it says quite straightforwardly that when Joseph discovered the fact that Mary was pregnant, he decided to put her away privily, as the King James Version puts it. Why? Because he recognized that apparently a violation had taken place in the context of Judaistic betrothal, and therefore that it was permissible for him to do such a thing. So what Mark and Luke presume, Matthew articulates, that divorce was permitted on account of sexual immorality. Why? Well, clearly because the one flesh union has now been violated. That which God has said, not man put asunder, that which God has joined together, that which God has said is to take place within a monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong companionship has now been violated. It has been broken. It will never be the same again. And so, that marital unfaithfulness, that immorality, made divorce permissible. Permissible, but not prescribed. Something that is permitted is not necessarily prescribed. And that is why, in contemporary experiences of that kind of marital breakdown, our first concern must always be with repentance, with forgiveness, with restoration, and with reconciliation. Because it is permitted, it is not mandated, and therefore it is not something that should be rushed to. The pathway of reconciliation may be the hardest path, but it's probably the best path. Now, in the New Testament, you only have one other exception. We're not going to work it out tonight. I'll point it out to you. Many of you will know where it is. And that is the exception that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7. And there he's making reference to the departure of the unbelieving partner in a marriage. Paul says there, not that the believing spouse should be an initiator in that demise, but that if that is the case with which they are confronted, that the believing party may allow the unbelieving partner to go. And in that context, the offended against believing spouse is then free to remarry. So, you have this categorical statement by Jesus— you have the exception in relationship to sexual immorality. 
you have the exception in relationship to the unbelieving spouse. The plain statement of Jesus is the plain statement of Jesus. And we cannot set aside the clarity with which he speaks. Whenever someone divorces his wife, or a wife divorces her husband, without biblical grounds, of which there are only two, then to remarry is an act of adultery. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, inevitably, in relationship to this question, there are all kinds of legitimate considerations that need to be dealt with on an individual, personal basis. And it is impossible within the orb of a monologue like this for me, or frankly for anyone else, to articulate all the variable factors that are represented in the nuances of marital breakdown and infidelity and remarriage and everything else. Suffice it to say that as a pastoral team, we spend a significant amount of our time trying to unravel many of these things and work the principles through uh, with men and women. And some of you know that. And there are good stories and there are not so good stories concerning it. But of this we need be in no doubt. In no doubt as to God's divine ideal in the marriage bonds, an ideal which is clear and which is permanent. Reminding us of God's design for marriage, you're listening to Alistair Begg, and this is Truth For Life. Alistair will conclude this message on divorce tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget you can catch up on previous messages or share today's program with a friend when you visit us at truthforlife.org. Or, this is even easier, you can simply follow Truth For Life with Alistair Begg on Facebook, and that way you can conveniently share your favorite messages with your Facebook friends. We're also on Instagram. Search for Alistair Begg Truth For Life. These resources are available free of charge because of the generous support we receive from Truth Partners. These are listeners who commit to regular monthly donations. They provide the financial backbone for this ministry. When you join that team today, or when you make a one-time donation, we want to say thank you by sending you a book titled The Heart of the Church. Wherever you live, there are likely dozens of churches, different sizes, different shapes, different styles. But what are the essential elements of a biblical church? How can you tell if the congregation you're a part of is staying true to God's design? That's the subject of this brief but clarifying book. Request your copy of The Heart of the Church when you become a Truth Partner today or when you make a one-time donation. Go to truthforlife.org donate or call 888-588-7884. Don't forget that as a Truth Partner, you're able to request two featured resources each month at no additional cost. This is a great way to build a personal library and to build your knowledge of Scripture. Of course, your support ensures that these programs remain available as a source of solid Bible teaching for both you and for your fellow listeners all around the world. 
Once again, our web address to sign up as a truth partner is truthforlife.org slash donate or call 888-588-7884. And thank you again for your essential partnership. You're helping provide clear, relevant Bible teaching free of charge. We're so grateful. I'm Bob Lapine, hoping you'll join us Thursday as we continue our study about divorce and the hope that's available for everyone, no matter your past. The Bible teaching of Alistair Begg is furnished by Truth For Life, where the learning is for living.